0: What you know, good Ann camp. You're listening to the Ann campaigns church politics podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason Dixon line, the right reverend Christopher Butler. And I have to apologize because once again, because of my scheduling conflicts, I got a lot going on right now, a lot of speaking engagements and all that. But because of my some of my conflicts and and my schedule, we weren't able to bring Chris on today. You know, he is campaigning right now. So he has a tight schedule and we couldn't make that work this time. So I do apologize because I do know that you guys like to hear Chris's uh, perspective and um, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that we get back on schedule for this. It's just a busy time, but a good busy time, kind of like a kingdom blessed busy time. So we got a lot of a lot going on, spreading the word, just need to get those schedules aligned. But I take full responsibility for that. Well, we took a week off because, again, of, of my schedule, Uh, And it seems like everything happened during that time. What didn't happen during that time? We we had Biden's State of the Union, uh, which was interesting, had some high spots and maybe some low spots as well. We had the Democrats, terrible abortion legislation that uh, thankfully Joe Manchin shot down. We had some issues with Manchin, but on this one, I will uh, stand by him. You got the new Supreme Court uh, justice nominee, and we'll be certainly be talking about that pretty soon as a black uh, woman. And for better or worse, probably for worse, definitely for worse. Let me say that. uh, All this seems to be overshadowed by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. That's what all the talk's been about. All the other things have been seem to be small details compared to this really. Uh, I mean, potentially earth shattering uh, conversation uh, w- w- that's going on about what Russia is doing, what Putin is is pursuing and and how long Ukraine can hold them off. Now, I've said for a long time, I'm not a expert on foreign affairs. I think the AN campaign really believes not to pretend to be experts where we're not. Uh, we believe that we should go to the ex- experts and ask questions when we need to ask questions, because uh, we're not here just to hear. Me nor Chris kind of run our mouths and 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 talk about stuff that we really aren't equipped to talk about. We're here to really get into it so we can help uh you know people form opinions, not tell you what your opinion should be, but give you some information to think about uh and do our best to make sure that that's uh put into. Uh, kind of a biblical framework. And so that's what we're going to try to do today. I have a guest with me who is an expert in foreign affairs. And so we're going to have a good conversation. But before I introduce him, you know how this goes. Uh, We want to give a shout out to our sponsor, the Fetzer Institute, for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. And I'm going to say this again, folks, the uh, application is about to close. So if you are in Atlanta, the Atlanta area, the Atlanta region, or you are in Chicago, the, the you know Chicago region, uh, Chicago land as they call it. Then you need to think twice about applying for our Christian uh, Civic Leadership Academy. This is our our first cohort that's about to come through. We're about to shut off applications, but think about that. Or if you know somebody who likes politics, who's a Christian, at least this is for Orthodox Christians. You know somebody who's interested in politics, and you say, "You know what? You need to just stop talking about it and actually learn the X's and O's and ethics that should go into uh, Christian politics." Then have them apply. You can do so at slash uh, academy That's where you will find the application. We would love uh, to consider you for that. I think we're going to bring in a really strong cohort. But think about it, man. Some some of y'all need to get into the game. Don't be afraid. You got to start somewhere and got to learn somewhere. So uh, take that into consideration. But as always, you know, you got to grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but to think like a Christian. Well, as I just told you, we do have a special guest with us. That special guest is Dr. Paul D. Miller. Uh, Dr. Miller is a professor of the practice of international affairs at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. Dr. Miller spent a decade in public service as director for Afghanistan and Pakistan as uh, as director for Afghanistan and Pakistan and on the National Security Council staff. He was an intelligence analyst for the CIA and a military intelligence officer in the U.S. Army. So this this brother has some uh, some background and some expertise in this area in general. I think we've been on a couple panels together. Uh, Maybe it was the Aspen Institute. But I just want to welcome you, Paul, onto the Church Politics Podcast. How's it going?
1: Thanks so much for having me on the show. I'm happy to be here. Um, good to see you again. And, uh, yeah, I was asking in a few other places. Good to talk to you again. Wish it was under better circumstances. Uh, the world's falling apart, sometimes feels like. Um, but, you know, it's all in the good Lord's hands, and his providence will guide everything for his good.
0: There you go, man. There you go. No, it's been great. I, I mean, we've had some good conversations. I know we've been on panels in D.C., and and, and uh It's been good to, you know, you have a different area of expertise than I do. And I've I've appreciated what you brought uh, to this conversation. I'm going to be honest with you, uh, though, Paul, on this particular issue, you know, I was going from place to place, reading every article I could get a hold of. I have some good podcasts that I really trust what they say. um, And I just felt like I couldn't necessarily trust the information that I was getting getting. To be able to even weigh in on this, and maybe it's one of those subjects where if you're not an expert in it, it takes you a while to really have commentary. What we're talking about is commentary, so we made a, a comment on Twitter about you know we haven't said much about uh this invasion because you know we we want to make sure that we know what we're talking about. Some people took that to mean we didn't know that Russia was wrong or that we didn't want <laughs> we didn't want to say they were wrong. That's not what we were saying. We were saying we we didn't have commentary to add to the broader discussion until we knew a little more. And I think having you on, Paul, as part of that conversation, I, I just I'm kind of saying that to 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 let folks know that they're not alone, but also to say, you know, I've had certain issues with the media, but on this particular issue, I felt like a lot of people were just speaking primarily from their narrative because I was hearing completely opposite things from a lot of different uh, media outlets have you have you seen an issue just with the the information that's been out there or, or you think it's been pretty solid?
1: First I just want to say I really admire and respect the ability to not comment on every single issue. Um, I, I remind my students that it's okay to say I don't know if that's the right answer, right? If that's the honest answer. And uh, if you if, if so if you need like an extra day or two just to think, gather some information, it's okay to not have a hot take. So I respect that. I think that's a good thing, and I hope your listeners appreciate that about um the kind of commentary you try to provide um you know on on this issue on russian ukraine there's a couple different ways in which the information environment has been challenging one is that hey it's wartime and there's the fog of war it's really hard to understand what's going on and particularly the first few days i felt like i just didn't have a very clear picture of on the ground day to day what's happening where because i think for American audiences, we are accustomed to our Defense Department giving like daily briefings and embedding journalists with U.S. forces so that, that they could provide an abundantly clear picture of where our forces were operating and when. So we've been acclimated to a certain level of clarity knowing the military course of events. And that's obviously not happening in Russia and Ukraine. Um, Russia just doesn't do that, and the Ukrainians can't do that. And so there's a murkiness to the military situation. It might feel unfamiliar to a lot of audiences because we've been acclimated to something different. So that's one way in which I found this to be challenging. Is there something else you're getting at, though?
0: No, I think you hit it on the head. Okay. Uh, it, it, I just had the feeling, even even with subjects that I don't know a whole lot about, I feel like if I if I do my due diligence for a week or so, or for a, you know for a good amount of time, I feel good enough to to lay some questions out there and at least give people the framework on this one. I did not feel that way, even though we felt you know Putin was wrong and. This was an issue. Speaking more into it just wasn't something we wanted to do at the time. And I'm, I'm glad that some folks can appreciate that, because that's one of the main things the AND campaign talks about. If you're not an expert on something, you don't always have to speak. And on issues like this, we usually take a few days to to really come out and say something. And people are asking why and all yeah. that and just wanted to kind of give them an explanation. I, 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 I but, I, but, but I, Paul, go ahead. Oh, I, I wondered if
1: you were also getting at the fact that there are some commentators in the United States that are seemingly sympathetic to Putin, uh, which is something you talk about. I think they're wrong. Putin's completely in the wrong. But that is another added element to our information environment is that some people are uh, maybe soft peddling their critiques. there. But anyway, we'll we'll get to that when we get to it.
0: Yeah, there there was definitely some of that, too, for me, uh, along with, I think, folks just not knowing, but uh, but feeling like they had to say something about it. And even some of the my trusted uh, sources were a little uh, I didn't feel quite comfortable with what they were putting out there. Uh, But, Paul, I I really want to start off with a conversation about the background of this. Right. Uh, Russia has invaded Ukraine. Uh, This happened last week. But you've said I was reading one of your articles. You said that you felt that the world war really started in 2014. Help us understand the background of what's happening between Russia and Ukraine. Give us a little bit of that background. Yeah.
1: So so Russia did invade Ukraine in 2014, um, a small peninsula in the south called Crimea. Uh, it juts out into the Black Sea. And it invaded uh, without a whole lot of opposition uh, because the Ukrainians understood they were not able to really stop the Russian army. And the, the Russians annexed uh, that territory to the Russian Federation. And for the past eight years, it simply acted as if that is Russian territory. The international community put a bunch of sanctions on Russia, and that's all. There was not a whole lot we could have to do unless we were going to go to war on it, and we weren't. And so Russia kind of got away with it. Um, There's been a low, uh, uh, a long running simmering um, uh, kind of rebellion in eastern Ukraine. Uh, In addition to annexing Crimea, Russia also gave money and weapons and training to some rebels in the eastern part of Ukraine. Um, Rebels who are ethnically Russian and who speak the Russian language. Um, uh, Putin felt that they really belonged to Russia. And so he got enough Ukrainian Russian speaking rebels to say, yeah, that's right. We want to belong to Russia. So he sponsored a, uh, that kind of insurgency, and it's been, you know, uh, churning along at a very low boil for the last eight years. Um, so the war in Ukraine didn't start this week. Uh, it, it reached a much higher intensity as something like two hundred thousand Russian troops surrounded the country, invaded the country, airstrikes in cities, urban warfare. It's a much bigger deal now, but the war has been going on for, for eight years.
0: Let 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 the people let the audience know. A little bit of the background on how how NATO plays a role in this um, and, and what, you know, what this what Russia might be. At least they say they're responding to or some people think they're responding to in regard to NATO. So what is NATO? How do they play? How they how might have they played a role in this in invasion?
1: So one of the pretexts that Putin has cited for his war in Ukraine is uh, NATO expansion. So NATO is uh, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization the military alliance between the United States and most of Europe, founded in 1949. After the Cold War ended, uh, NATO accepted new members uh, into the alliance, including members in Eastern Europe, including a few former Soviet republics. Um, and uh, there's, there's a kind of a, the, the Russian, Vladimir Putin says that we promise not to do that. There's no piece of paper that says that, but he claims that American diplomats promised not to expand NATO. Uh, That's his claim. He also says that NATO expanding to include other countries is somehow a threat to Russia. I don't think it is. NATO is a defensive alliance. It does not carry out offensive operations. It's simply a way for small countries in Eastern Europe, like Poland, that historically have been victims of Russian imperialism in past centuries to be able to have an independent sovereign existence with the assistance of other countries in Europe and with the assistance of the United States. So Putin thinks this is somehow a threat to him. It's only a threat to him if, if, if it's a threat to the Russian empire, right? <laughs> to Russian efforts to dominate their near abroad. If Russia is content to sit behind its borders, then it's no threat to Russia at all. Okay, So that's Putin's pretext for how NATO might somehow threaten uh, Russia. But here's the thing. Ukraine's not a member of NATO. Um, Ukraine wants to be a member of NATO. And NATO has said, yeah, the door's open. We can talk. Uh, someday we think you're going to be a member, right? We actually made that public pronouncement way back in 2008. And that made Putin so mad that uh, I think in some ways it, it actually triggered a catalyze the initial invasion in 2014. And now he's really taken, taken a step further with uh, this week's invasion. Um He wants to make sure that Ukraine never becomes a member of NATO. Why is Ukraine such a big deal to him? Here's the other pretext he gives for the war. He claims that Ukraine and Russia are not two separate nations, that uh, Ukrainian is not a distinct nation, that uh, Russia is actually the name for the nation of all Orthodox Slavic peoples. And Ukraine is actually the birthplace of Orthodox Slavic civilization. Kivian Rus converted to Christianity in 988. right? And so Putin thinks that since his civilization was born there, it belongs inside the borders of the Russian Federation uh, and certainly does not belong inside NATO. That's a real big threat to Putin's vision of his kind of Russian empire, his um, empire of Slavic Christian civilization. And, and of course, this makes no sense to anybody else in the world who understands that Ukraine is a sovereign, independent country, has been for decades, uh, and that every country has the right to defend itself, defend its sovereignty and form alliances with others to help them protect their own sovereignty.
0: And he's also kind of called this a peacekeeping mission and all that and all that stuff. So there's a lot of different narratives he's kind of throwing out there. Uh, hope, I guess, hoping one will stick or at least to kind of cover up what his real intentions are. Yeah, well,
1: is a really important point. He claims that the Ukrainian government was carrying out genocide against ethnic Russians in the East. But what we've actually seen in the past week is that some of the fiercest fighting on the ground is in the northeastern city of Kharkiv. Kharkiv is almost entirely a Russian city. It's populated by ethnic Russians who speak Russian, and they are fighting tooth and nail to stop the Russian army. So plainly, they don't think that they're under any particular oppression by the Ukrainian government, and they're not eager to join the Russian government. Uh... So, again, it shows the gaping holes in Putin's logic.
0: Got you. Let's dig into who Putin is a little bit. Uh, Who is this guy? Kind of what's his background and what do you see as his worldview? And you touched on it a little bit. What what do you see as his worldview and his motivation right now? And I know that even some have questioned. We saw Marco, Senator Marco Rubio has almost questioned his uh, sanity almost right now. But who is this guy? What's his motivation and worldview?
1: He's a former KGB officer who was kind of selected to be the next president of Russia in the year 2000 uh, the 1990s were pretty chaotic in Russia the president of Russia at the time Boris Yeltsin was not terribly competent and he was often drunk uh, and Russia was it was a tumultuous decade with um, a lot of criminality and that's when the oligarchs made their fortunes buying state-owned enterprises and so Putin came into office um, and he was the guy that was going to bring stability he was going to be a technocrat we when I say KGB I don't have a high regard for the KGB. The KGB was Can actually- Can you
0: explain who that is? Who, yeah. yeah folks so. the,
1: the KGB under the Soviet Union was their secret uh, intelligence service, but it's also accurate to call them a terrorist organization. KGB was a worldwide organization that assassinated people, um, conducted sabotage operations, as well as stealing secret intelligence. Uh, so Putin grew up in that organization. Uh, it's now called the FSB. It's something else. He grew up in that organization. He's got that worldview of kind of do anything for any, you know, for the sake of mother Russia, right? Uh, The the rules don't apply to the KGB. Uh, They just don't. They're above the law. Uh, They respect no authority. The only thing they they, they care about is serving the motherland. Um, So that's the kind of KGB background. Uh, Putin comes into office. He's supposed to be this intelligent technocrat who's going to bring stability. And Russia does actually enjoy some greater stability and prosperity, not so much because of him, but because oil and gas prices are going up and it, and it supports his government. Um, you asked about his worldview. This is a guy with a lot of historical nostalgia. In 2005, he changed the Russian national anthem, uh, the, the tune. He readopted the tune of the old Soviet anthem and made it the new Russian anthem. Um, that's just a small anecdote that gives you a sense of how much this guy really wants the Soviet Union back. And by the Soviet Union, I mean, he really wants the Russian Empire back. He wants Russia to be a superpower, respected on the world stage as one of the two great powers in the world. Um, he's also the longest serving head of state of any major country in the world today. He's been in office 22 years. Far along, he's out, this is his fourth president he's on. Uh, he's second or third Chinese premier. So he thinks of himself as an elder statesman in the world who's also disrespected, uh, not well regarded, not given his due. Who's also not governing over the the empire that he perceives in his mind, and he's seventy years old. He needs a legacy. He needs to resurrect the Russian Empire while he's still got time and get the glory and respect that that is his due. That's I think what's going on in his mind. It's not. He's not crazy. It's it's rational once you understand kind of his goal and his and his methods.
0: Got you. Got you. So he's kind of Machiavellian. Yeah, uh, Yeah. has uh, imperial ambitions and and so on. And this all adds up to what he's doing now uh, and how he's moving now. Okay.
1: Now that's Putin. I I want to say something about his wider circle. Okay. Because, um, I think Putin, it's fair to call him a Russian nationalist, but there are some people in his circle that go really far and pretty extreme in this stuff. Um, relevant background here is that the Russian Orthodox church has essentially endorsed the invasion. Why would the Russian Orthodox church do that? It's because, uh, because Russian nationalism is closely intertwined with Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox Christianity. And the Russian Orthodox Church has essentially allowed itself to be co-opted by the Putin government. Uh, and they are playing a role as a cheerleader and a booster for his authoritarian state. Um, and there are people who are Russian nationalists who take this religious aspect very seriously. And it's a version of Russian Christian nationalism. We have that debate sometimes in America about Christian nationalism. It's my next book. Um, but it's not a uniquely American or Protestant or evangelical phenomenon. All around the world you see governments that see the power of religion and they co-opt it and use it for their ends, the way Russia uh, has co-opted Orthodox Christianity and is using it to justify an invasion. Viktor Orban in Hungary doing a pretty similar thing, uh, Bolsonaro in Brazil doing it with Catholicism. Uh, churches have to be on guard against the seduction of being co-opted by the state and turned into cheerleaders for whoever's in power.
0: That's such a good point, because once somebody can say that uh, your religion, your God is behind what we're doing, then that's that's very powerful. And that, to your point, is why religion gets misused uh, all the time. L- let's look at the other other side. Um, you have a president of Ukraine who's become sort of a, a hero. Uh, I'd say he's become a star, but he, in one way, he was already kind of a star in Ukraine. Tell us a little bit about uh, President of uh, Vladimir uh, Zelensky uh, and the same thing. What, what's his worldview from what you can tell? I know there's probably less information on him. He hasn't you know been in power that long. What's his worldview and what's his motivations right now?
1: So you're right. He kind of already was a star within Ukraine. I don't know a whole lot about Zelensky. I just kind of read what, what everybody's read in the last few days. Look, when he came into office, nobody took him seriously. He's a, he's a former TV star. Um, he won Ukraine's version of dancing with the stars. <laughs> He, he was a rom-com actor and famously one of his TV roles, he played a high school teacher who accidentally got elected to the presidency. Right. So Zelensky played the president on TV and then he ran a campaign for in real life to be president. Nobody took him seriously. I think they, possibly he didn't even, and then he won, you know, a lot of Ukrainians were sick of the establishment, kind of all that same popular stuff we've seen uh, in recent years. And so he won. And again, people thought, you know, who is this clown? Um, what has happened over the past week is that, uh, you know, he's stayed in country, uh, showing some physical bravery, right? He has uh, kind of rallied Ukrainians. He's, he's been a voice for Ukrainian patriotism, for Ukrainian identity. Um, he's also done a very effective job of calling the world and asking for their sort of demanding assistance and their help. He's saying, look, Ukraine is a front line on the on the." On the Campaign for freedom. If you care about human freedom, you should help the Ukrainian fight against the Russians today. It's a very effective talking point. And Zelensky, perhaps because he has an acting background, he can play to the world cameras very effectively. And it has helped that he has stayed in the country. Contrast this with uh, eight months ago when the Taliban were moving in on Kabul and President Ashraf Ghani fled. And that was very unhelpful. It helped catalyze the collapse of that government and the end of that war as 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 badly as possibly could happen, um, so the fact that Zelensky has shown real bravery and and charisma has so really helped the Ukrainians' cause.
0: That's good, man. Thank you for that background as well. I guess I'll end this this portion by asking you: How does the U.S. fit into this background? Uh, give us a little, you know, some of your thoughts on the as much as it's relevant to this conversation, the history between Russia and U S and I know you could write a whole book on this. So, you know, you don't have to go all the way into it, but what might be relevant to uh, what's going on right now?
1: So I think the best way to answer that is the war in Ukraine um, is more consequential than the war in Afghanistan, than the war in Iraq the war in Syria and, and on and on and on. Why is it more consequential? It's not yet. It's not yet. It's only lasted a week uh, and perhaps not yet killed as many people as those other wars. But the potential exists for it to escalate in, into World War Three, quite literally World War Three. Um, and that's kind of how the United States plays into this. Um,
0: good stuff. Yeah. No, good stuff, Paul. I appreciate that. Anything else you think people need to know that I might not have asked in regard to background on what's going on now?
1: Uh, nope. I, I think that's probably a good background. I'm happy to talk more as needed.
0: Good stuff. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. I'm here with Dr. Uh, Paul Miller, uh, who's given us uh, some expertise on foreign affairs. We just got through talking about some of the background on this Russian invasion of Ukraine. We want you all to have the background and understanding this. And I kind of want to get into, uh, uh, Dr. Miller, I want to get into the present status of the war. What would you say is the present status of the war? We're hearing a lot of things, you know, is Russia, did this go, is this going as Russia planned? What's been the response from others? I just want to get into some of that. So what, what would you say is the present, as far as you can tell, the present status of what's going on in Ukraine?
1: Yeah. So this is where it does get murky. It's kind of hard to say. And it changes very rapidly. We're talking on Wednesday afternoon on on March 2nd. And uh, by the time this podcast comes out, it could be dramatically different. Um, It does appear. And I'm going to give you my best guess based on kind of everything I've kind of collated for the last week. I think it's clear the war did not go initially as Russia planned. Right? It seems that their plan was uh, to kind of waltz through eastern Ukraine uh, like liberators um, and be welcomed by the Russian population there. Paratroop, you know, airdrop in some special forces in the capital, assassinate the president, catalyze the collapse of the government, and accept the surrender of, of the military. That was their plan, and of course, it didn't work because um, the Ukrainians fought back. And uh, some, there's some military mistakes. You know, the, the Russians did not gain air superiority. They left the Ukrainian military intact. They left the Ukrainian air force intact. So, when these large Russian columns started driving down the highways, Ukrainians just bombed them, and and very effectively caused a lot of traffic jams, killed a lot. of a lot of Russians. So none of that was in the Russian plan. And that's why for this week, there's been a lot of optimism, a lot of kind of happy talk, like, my gosh, look at these brave Ukrainians uh, fighting back. And and there's some truth to that. Um, I, I, I apologize for bringing some pessimism here. Uh, but I do want to offer some caution that, uh, yes, it's not gone the way Russia's planned, and yet they still have overwhelming advantages. Uh, and, I, and I think that so long as Putin decides to continue the war, he is overwhelmingly likely to win a conventional victory, with a little asterisk there on what I mean on that, um, because he hasn't played his full hand. There's a lot of military force still on the table, that he hasn't played yet. Uh, he, he had gathered 200,000 troops around the borders, but invaded only with a portion of that. There's still a lot of troops like sitting on the border, uh, and the Russian Air Force is still on the ground. They haven't really engaged as much as they could, so there's a lot more force the Russians could bring to bear. In particular, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, the Russians fought a war in a small place called Chechnya within the Russian Federation, and they leveled the place. They carpet bombed the capital, a place called Grozny, and they massacred tens of thousands of civilians. It was a ghastly, bloody war crime. It shows you what the Russians are willing and capable of doing in just the recent history. And they did something pretty similar in Aleppo in Syria just five years ago. Um, They haven't done that in Ukraine yet, partly because I think they're telling this narrative that the Ukrainians are our brothers, right, our fellow Christian Slavs, and we don't want to treat them the same way we treat those other people. I think that's maybe part of what's going on. But if Putin has to choose between winning a war um, and, and, and killing lots of Ukrainians, he'll kill a lot of Ukrainians. And I fear that we're at a turning point where the war is about to get a lot uglier and we might see the Russians adopt far more brutal tactics. In fact, even just today and yesterday, we saw some indiscriminate bombing in Kharkiv uh, and elsewhere. I think we're going to see more of that um, because Putin understands he's going to have to turn up the heat to crush the Ukrainian resistance.
0: Yeah, and also seems like he's almost going to have to save face, right? He doesn't want to look like a failure and and all that stuff. So he may have to go go all the way in or at least further in uh, to kind of save his own reputation. It's Uh, not
1: just his reputation. It it may be in, in his regime and his very life. Right? Hmm. If Putin loses this war, it's very likely that a general will take him to a back room, put a bullet in his head and the Putin era is over. Um, and I think Putin knows that. So his life is on the line here. He has to win this war.
0: Wow. That's heavy. Yeah. That, that, that adds some perspective to it. Let me ask you this. It, it's been said that because of how Putin went about this, that he's done more than anything, anybody else in bringing the West together, that the West is now kind of unified and they're ready to to, to push back. So one of the things that we know is that there's been some sanctions that have been imposed. And what I want to kind of get at is what are those sanctions? What kind of impact will those sanctions have? Right. So so there's you know, and I'll let you get deeper into it. But we know there's been several different sanctions that have gone at their central bank and all this other stuff. They don't necessarily apply to energy and uh, agricultural goods. That's part of it. We already know. I've heard somebody call uh, Russia's. Uh, economy or basically Russia in general, a, a gas station with nuclear weapons, like they're not in a good economic position. I think their economies is is one fourth the size of the United States. Let's talk about these sanctions. What are they and what impact do you think they'll have given uh, where Russia's at economically and, and how they're intertwined with some European countries in the U.S. economically?
1: Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, I'd say that it's more than sanctions and it's more than the West, right? This is a global, sort of unprecedented global cooperation. i even characterize it this way. The world has declared open global economic warfare on the Russian Federation. Um, that's how far and how fast this has gone. We've had sanctions. We've tried; we put sanctions on Iraq, put sanctions on Russia before, sanctions on Iran. I've never seen anything quite like this. Uh, the just unprecedented extent and scope and, and global cooperation on this. Um, you mentioned the re- sanctioning on the Russian Central Bank means that the Russian central bank can't access their foreign reserves, which means they can't cushion themselves against the sanctions the way they plan to. They actually actually spent eight years planning for this to um, sanction-proof themselves, and now they can't actually execute that plan because of the sanctions on the central bank itself. Um, Another big sanction is kicking uh, Russian banks, individual banks, out of something called SWIFT, which is a mechanism for um, clearing international transactions between banks. If you're out of SWIFT, you can't do business internationally. And that means it's almost like an embargo where Russian banks can't buy anything. And if banks can't buy anything, nobody else in Russia can buy anything internationally. Um, You mentioned the energy piece. It was a long-running, multi-billion-dollar project to build a huge gas pipeline from Russia to Germany called Nord Stream 2. And Germany just canceled it. We've been asking the Germans to cancel that for like 10 years. They finally did it this week because they finally recognized... That They can't allow themselves to become eco- energy dependent on Russia. And again, we've been telling that for a long time. But the fact that they took that uh, change, is uh, a sea change in German opinion, it goes even further in Germany. You're talking about sanctions. There's more that uh, the world has been doing in response beyond the sanctions. Germany announced a couple of days ago, the German chancellor stood up and said, it's time. We are now going to increase our defense budget by 100 billion euros, and we're going to spend more than 2% GDP on our military. I I wish I could convey to you what a huge, stunning change this is in German public opinion and German foreign policy. This is a generational change. And uh, I think of all the things that has happened over the past week, that's probably the one that caught Putin's attention. When Germany says, we're going to rearm, we're going to build our military back up, that probably is going to scare Putin quite a bit.
0: Now, Germany was at least from reports I heard initially, they seem to be dragging their feet a little bit because they economically they do get a lot of their energy needs from Russia. Um, But but from what I'm hearing, they've overcome some of that hesitancy, at least to some extent. I mean, we know that the sanctions still don't include energy, but uh, but they stepped in the game a little bit because uh, initially it seemed like people were worried about what Germany would do if they were really willing to put some skin in the game.
1: Um, So the sanctions, I think formally the sanctions don't include energy, but. Something like canceling Nord Stream 2, that hits their energy industry. And a couple of private, so BP and I think Shell, just voluntarily pulled out, right? They were uh, partnering with some Russian oil and gas companies to develop Russian energy supplies. And they just pulled out. They said, we're done. And I don't think that was because of the sanctions. It was just something that they decided to do because it's no longer a a predictable business environment. So it's a knock-on effect of the sanctions uh, that is
0: catalyzing more change. And this is an already weak economy. Is, is it fair to say that? Yeah.
1: You, you, the, the quip about it being a gas station with nuclear weapons, the, the Russian economy is, I think, smaller than Italy's, uh, which, again, is kind of why Putin is so upset about being disrespected on the world stage. Nobody treats him seriously because his economy is nothing. It's not nothing, but it's, it's, it's not one of the major economies of the world. You have the United States, the European Union, and, and China are the three big economies. And then, like, Japan is right right there. And Russia doesn't really rank in the top 10. Um, and so that's another reason why Putin feels so insecure.
0: Got you. Let's talk a little bit about the nuclear implications. What, what? One thing that I've seen that I think has been tro- has been problematic and troublesome has been that the way Russia has just thrown out the implications of nuclear war, like, you know, kind of throwing that out there like this, you know, this is an option, blah, blah, blah. Obviously, nobody should want that to be even in the conversation. Can we talk about how serious that threat is and and what what we should be thinking on that?
1: So a couple days ago, Putin announced to the world that he was putting his nuclear forces on heightened alert. Um, And we want to say right off the bat, I'm not afraid that nuclear war is going to break out tomorrow. So we don't need to go invest in fallout shelters uh, this week. Um, When he does something like that, it's a way of signaling. And it's not the first time, right? Putin and other Russian leaders, they've done this before where they kind of make a nuclear threat. And it's a way of saying, hey, look, here's my red line. And I think what Putin is saying is do not militarily intervene in this conflict. This is my war. I'm going to fight this war. He understands that we're sending weapons to the Ukrainians. But the moment a American tank crosses the border into Ukraine, yeah, then it's World War III and, and anything's anything's possible. So I don't think it's going to happen. Putin made it clear. Yeah, you know, he, he made the nuclear threat. And we're, we're going to, I think we're going to respect that in a sense. We're not going to intervene militarily, nor should we.
0: What about like a no-fly zone? Does that, do you see that as crossing that, the red line?
1: Yes, it, it would cross the red line because a no-fly zone is actually an act of war. I, I hear that sometimes people say, well, a no-fly zone is like a, an intermediate step. It's actually not. You, you don't just declare a no-fly zone. You have to enforce it with an air force and shoot down airplanes that violate it which means we're at war right and a no fly zone and this would, yeah, is war yeah.
0: just so just so people know too I don't want to forget a no fly zone and correct me if I'm wrong would mean no no russian plane could fly over ukraine if they did fly over ukraine we would shoot them somebody down, yeah. would be willing to shoot them down that's
1: right if we declare the no fly zone it's us shooting them down it's us shooting down russian airplanes which means we're at war with russia so a no fly zone i, I we, there's no way we can do that I, I should i should make it clear i don't think we should militarily in this it's not worth world war 3 we should keep her powder dry and wait uh, until Putin actually invades a NATO country. And that's when you fight World War Three.
0: And what was your, You wrote an article on that, just so people know. He wrote a really good article on what this means and where should how far we should go and what we shouldn't do. What, was that on dispatch?
1: It wasn't a dispatch. Yeah. And that was back in December when I kind of posed that hypothetical. Should we fight World War Three for Ukraine? And, and and the answer is no. And that's not to like diminish the importance of the Ukrainians who are fighting for their lives and their and their nation. But it's to say, what is our responsibility as Americans? Um, it is first and foremost, you know, the American government should protect America, right? Um, and our allies with whom we have signed a treaty. And this is, this is a bit tricky because some Americans, up until last week, thought that that was too much, that we actually shouldn't go to war to defend our allies in Europe Latvia, Montenegro, you know, Greece. Like, why would we fight a war for them? But now you have some people saying, no, we should go further and be willing to defend even Ukraine, even though Ukraine's not in NATO. And my position is look, we should defend the line that we have already committed to, no more and no less. We should not go further and just announce that Ukraine is an ally when it's not, but we should absolutely be willing to defend those with whom we have that treaty obligation. I think that's, that's a matter of keeping our word or keeping our promises.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, And you've seen the Biden administration, even in the State of the Union last night, walk the tightrope of saying we are serious about this. We're watching you, but we're not trying to go to war, which is tough. Right. Because, you don't. if, if you definitely are not going to take a certain step, then maybe he says, oh, well, I'll do whatever I want to. And so it's kind of a tightrope between saying we're serious, but we at the same time don't want to go to war. And, any, any thoughts on that kind of line there? Yeah. I, and
1: I think he I, I think he's correct. And I will I will say that I think the Biden administration has handled this pretty well over the last two weeks. And I say that as somebody that doesn't have a lot of good things to say about the Biden administration particularly their foreign policy. You think about Afghanistan, what a disaster that was, what an avoidable catastrophe. Um, And yet I do want to say, I think the last two weeks, uh, the Biden administration has done a decent job, first diplomatically trying to rally the world and um, preempt the Russians' narrative by uh, sharing our intelligence about what their intentions were. It was kind of effective. And then um, working somewhat behind the scenes, but also showing some leadership, to rally the world and coordinate our sanctions. I think that's been pretty effective as well. Um, so, you know, going to give credit where credit's due. I think Biden's done a decent job on that. I do want to zoom out to the bigger picture. And I think there's a lot of mistakes over the past 30 years, uh, that Biden and Trump and Obama, you know, all, all share in, um, that led to this point. I think we, this war was avoidable. This was not inevitable. We could have done more to help, uh, uh, rally the Europeans and deter Russia much earlier. But we're we're past that now.
0: There's one criticism, and it's kind of 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 Ukraine in part, but just of the media, I think, in general, is number one, you have the situation where it was said, and if if this is false, let me know, it was said that some Africans were trying to get out of the country and they were pushed back and they said, no, let real Ukrainians come in here. You had videos, people saying, you know, these people are just like us. They're blue eyed, you know, and, and blonde haired and, Some people would say when stuff like this is going on in Africa and other places, it doesn't get this kind of attention. Any any thoughts on that? Uh, Because I think a lot of people are a little bit confused at at how that works.
1: Um, I think this war does merit greater attention because of how consequential it could be. Right. There's a there's a reason why the media is highlighting it, because we all know that uh, the consequences could be far more devastating than than any other war including Iraq, Afghanistan, elsewhere. Um, so that's my uh, partial defense of the media. Um, there are some, uh, I've seen some journalists say, I can't believe this is happening in a civilized country. Well, that's just a really unhelpful way of describing it. That's pretty racist, right? So we want to stay away from that language while still recognizing there's a escalatory potential of this war that is hugely significant. Um, so you, I think it's appropriate to try to walk that line. On the on the accusation that like the immigration policy, the refugees fleeing. Look, I don't know. Um, nobody knows really what the facts are. I will say, I know that Russian disinformation deliberately exacerbates racial tensions in Europe and the United States. They do that on purpose. Um, they're able to do it because the racial tensions are really there, right? Uh, let's not deny that. But Russia does know how to stoke those fires, create plausible sounding stories and uh amplify existing stories so just keep that in mind
0: so it could be disinformation but i think we would agree that if that's really happening on the border anywhere else i mean we we would want to uh condemn that absolutely okay good stuff man well that's that's kind of what we have going on what what's going on in ukraine right now we will be right back to talk about what this means for the future we'll be back on the church politics podcast that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. We were here, are here with Dr. Paul Miller, uh, who's given us some expertise on foreign affairs that we greatly appreciate. Somebody who, like I've said, I've been on some panels with and have gone back and forth with before. And like I said, one of the people I looked to when I was really trying to figure out what exactly is going on here. I think he's addressing it with, uh, intellectual honesty and obviously from a place, uh, like I said, of expertise. All right, let's talk about the future, uh, Paul. Um, What does this mean? And you talked about it a little bit. What does this mean for Russia's world relations just in general? This you know, people have said that move that they made last week changed everything for them. Anything else to say about their world relations moving forward? Let's say somehow that this doesn't you know, somehow this this ends. How has it changed their world relation, even if this doesn't end just terribly?
1: I'll put it this way. I think the war right now is a race to see which breaks first the Russian economy or the Ukrainian defense. Um, the Russian economy is under just tremendous strain and it's hard for me seeing the sanctions that are taking shape. It's hard to imagine how Russia survives. Um, and, and it would, it can only survive if they win a relatively quick military victory and then present the world with a fait accompli. And they, and it says, you know, do you, do you want our oil and gas? Do you want to do business with Russia? I think that's how Russia wins or survives out of this thing, if they do. Um, Because right now they've made themselves a pariah. And it's it's shocking to me how, with what casual disregard Putin has treated his standing on the world stage. He just either doesn't care or he's living in a fantasy land where he thinks that the world will accept this. Um, And I think that we've seen a few of the Russian oligarchs make public criticism of Putin, which is unprecedented. This doesn't happen. Um, And if the oligarchs are willing to voice public opposition and there's protests in the streets of Moscow and St. Petersburg, which is, again, pretty shocking, uh, that says to me there's a real, genuine opposition to the war within Russia, and that might play a role here uh, in in how the war plays out. Um, I hope for the better. If that prevails, then Russia could recover, get plugged back into the world, and things kind of go back to normal.
0: But I don't know. I was just reading an article by Ezra Klein in the New York Times that was saying and he was talking about the state of the union, but he was saying how much what Biden was talking about. He said it was it seemed like two different speeches. He starts off talking about Ukraine and then he separates that from what's going on in our economy. But what Ezra Klein was arguing was that those are actually a lot more intertwined than many are leading on. What does what does this war mean for the global economy and what are some things we need to watch out for in, in that regard?
1: Yeah, I think Ezra's right, um, and yeah, it's it's mostly about energy. Uh, I think we can all expect to see higher prices of the gas pump. Honestly, for the foreseeable future, I don't think it's going to go away soon. Biden did talk about releasing oil from the Strategic Reserve, which might provide some relief. But I think it's going to be a semi-permanent future for, for quite a while. Um, look, we, we live in a world where you and I, if we wanted to and had the money, we could travel pretty much anywhere with relatively ease and, and relative safety. And that's a world that uh, maybe we take for granted because it's just been the world we grew up in, right? Russia has now been unplugged from that world and 200 million Russians or hundred million Russians don't get to participate in that kind of taken for granted ease, pr- peace and prosperity that has surrounded us, you and I for forever. Um, and, and of course, Americans and Europeans and as large swaths of Africa and Asia. Uh, and that is, it's got to be stunning for the average Russian to suddenly be unplugged from the world as they know it. Um, Even Hollywood is refusing to release their movies in Russia. (laughs) Like, so they don't get to see the newest Marvel movie. That's not the biggest thing that's going on, but it gives you a flavor for just how much ostracism is facing Russia right now. Um, You and I, it's going to affect us by higher prices at the pump, but that's that's about it, honestly.
0: So do you you think this puts a a, a lot of pressure on the Biden administration when it comes to energy, when it comes to, you know, you know, you know, the decisions that that were made on the Keystone Pipeline and all that? Just generally, I know you're mostly focused on foreign affairs, but does that put a lot of pressure on them when it comes to independence? Right. Energy independence. Uh, Or maybe gives them an opportunity. Right. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's it's needed pressure. Right.
1: Yeah. I've heard people say that, like, hey, this should be an easy win. Biden should announce either. Um, Yeah. Keystone Pipeline and, uh, you know, reopen the mines and things like that, or crash course in green energy, like that he, he could and should use this as an opportunity to highlight the importance of energy independence and go one or both routes, right? Let's double down on our own domestic energy production and also maybe our green energy production. Um, sure, he could do either of those things. He's also got his hands full and he's got an agenda that he wants to focus on. I think maybe he doesn't want this crisis to hijack his presidency. Uh, and he wants to be able to focus on other things as well.
0: Got you, Paul. Lurking in the in the background, I ha- can't help but think what China's thinking in the background. What 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 type of advantage they might want to take of this? What side they might take? Um, obviously, they're, in, they're. I mean, in some ways, from posture, it seems like they're similar to 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 Russia in that somewhat cynical, not going to go. You know, only going to do what's best for them. What do you What do you think? China plays into this. And is this helpful to them? What do you think they're thinking right now?
1: So this is one of the uh, biggest implications, and I think probably a good news story um, so far. Russia and China have been growing closer together for the past 20 years, um, which is extremely worrying. And Russia's plan to protect itself from sanctions, I think, involved turning to China as the other market for its oil and gas and uh, an outlet to the world. Um, And it seems that that's probably not happening, at least not at the scale Russia expected and needs. China, so there was a UN Security Council vote and 11 or 15 countries condemned Russia. Russia, of course, didn't vote to condemn itself. It voted against it. But China abstained from that vote. That's really interesting that it abstained rather than joining with Russia. It says, we're going to stay on the sidelines on this one. Because I think China has seen the rapid global opprobrium that Russia has brought down on itself. And it doesn't necessarily want to be on the bad side of this, right? China is actually far more plugged into the world economy than Russia is. China has a lot more to lose. Um, China's also got its eye on Taiwan. And it's, I think, I think all of us are looking at Ukraine as the test case for what China might want to try to do in Taiwan. So if we make it hurt real bad on Russia for Ukraine, it'll make it less likely that china will ever try to invade taiwan and that's a really good news story so inflicting that pain and watching china stand on the sidelines that to me is a good news story
0: that's good last question um one of the things that biden hit on and we kind of talked about it was manufacturing you you did a good job of pointing out some of the good things that globalization has provided right the the ability to travel and things of that nature i've had some i'll be honest i've had some criticisms of how it's been handled in within our economy. I think that that was brought to bear when it came to the the, the pandemic and we really weren't manufacturing own stuff. We couldn't get it. We were too dependent on other people. We had taken too much of our manufacturing and our industry and put it in other places just because it was cheaper. So, uh, you know, that hurts us during the pandemic, but it also hurts us when it comes to jobs and things of that nature. Um, talk to me about You know, what what this should signal, not just the war, but also the pandemic when it comes to how we see globalizing and and doing business with others. In sight of what we need at home and what we need to be still be doing here to maintain a level of independence and also a level of industry that we've lost. So.
1: Early on in the pandemic, some people talk about the need to decouple our economy from China. I'm very much drawn to that idea. And I wrote a piece uh, calling for the decoupling from the autocratic world generally. So globalization, I think, can usually be a good thing, but you're absolutely correct that there are downsides to it, which means we need to be careful about exactly who we include in the club. Because if you include something like China in the club, we are importing their labor and environmental standards into our country. That's, That's no good. And we're, you know, vice versa. And uh, when we include Russia in the club, we're allowing ourselves, we're allowing them to gain leverage over us, uh, which they can then use for their foreign policy adventurism. So maybe we just need to decouple and say, look, we're gonna be, we're gonna celebrate globalization within the free world. Uh, if you're a democracy, we'll do business with you. If you're not a democracy, we're gonna hold you at arm's length. Doesn't mean a total embargo and we're we'll never do any business at all. But you know, free trade within the democratic world and uh, and a second look at the authoritarian countries of the world. I think that might be a good way to go. I tell you, you can't do it overnight. We are way too entwined with China um, and, and Saudi Arabia, for example. So it would be a generational undertaking, and it would take public servants at all levels to pursue this and explain it, because it won't uh, always be the easiest course. It sometimes would mean more expensive things. We get a lot of Cheap electronics from China, uh, you know, for example, and we might have to say, well, it's worth it to decouple our economies, give ourselves. It's not quite independence. It's not American independence, but it is free world independence. And that's, I think, worth defending
0: Man, I'm so thankful for you coming on here, uh, late notice, uh, but responding to us and and joining us. So much information that you gave us. Help us out. Where can people find you? And also tell us a little bit about some of your books that you've written and what you got coming up next.
1: Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, It's always good to talk. Um, You can find me on Twitter at Paul D. Miller 2, Paul D. Miller 2. On Twitter, um, uh, my, my next book, my last book is called Just War and Order of Liberty. So if you're interested in Just War Theory, you can check that one out. Um, the next one is coming out in just a few months in July. And it's the book on Christian nationalism. Um, it, is, it is it is really about American Christian nationalism. So I referenced you know, Russia's stuff. But it focuses on Christian nationalism in America. And it's called The Religion of American Greatness. What's Wrong with Christian Nationalism? The Religion of American Greatness. So I've um, been thinking about that for a long time. And I'd love to talk with you about, about that when uh, the book comes out. Um, but I appreciate talking with you and uh, look forward to uh, talking again sometime.
0: Appreciate you, man. Again, this was uh Dr. Uh, Paul D. Miller. Uh, we appreciate having him on. I hope you guys learned something again. We're all about trying to give you good information, not just what Justin or Chris think and want to want to get out there and say we want to give you good information so that you can form your opinions. So thanks again, brother, for coming on and camp you know what it is as always there is a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear there's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world politic with the boldness and compassion compassion of jesus christ until next time and camp well will will let you Somebody say kingdom. 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 oh lord i say kingdom